Hello friends, my name is Brenna. And I'm Danny. And, and this, this is Law Goes Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listeners' discretion is advised. Welcome back, Lagos friends, and happy March. March is National Disability Awareness Month, and unfortunately, disabled people have been scrutinized, oppressed, and taken advantage of for centuries. In today's case, we'll learn how one woman took advantage of and used disabled people in the worst possible way. I think it's great that you touched on something that is not typically talked about, and it's still present today. So great pick for the episode, and I feel like it's very appropriate, and I'm really interested to hear about this case and kind of ways we can look at situations a little differently to avoid this from happening again. Absolutely. That's the main thing is, and especially why we wanted to start the podcast is, you know, to help spread awareness. We can't just be two little girls, you know, in the vast internet, but (laughs) you know, anything that we could do. Yeah. Our voice, we're really big on making sure it's used to help promote things that people are not aware of we're not here to do this for entertainment although we do enjoy this and love Mm -hmm. it it's really for the greater good and the impact that we're going for of spreading that awareness of things that people are uncomfortable or don't even think to talk about absolutely and uh, with that we'll get right into it this episode is going to be an interesting one because it involves a little old lady who lived in a, oh no, not a shoe, but a death house. Oh goodness. Well, more specifically, she created the death house by murdering people. But you know what? Let me just tell you about Dorothea Puente, aka the death house landlady and one of the most notorious female serial killers in the U.S. Wait, did That's you right. say female serial killer? Yep. Okay. Our first. There we go. Dorothea was born January 9th in 1929 in Redlands, California. She unfortunately had a difficult childhood and that both of her parents were alcoholics and abusive and died when Dorothea was young. Her father died of tuberculosis when she was only eight years old. Her mother died in a motorcycle accident when Dorothea was nine and shortly before her death, Dorothea and her six siblings had been removed from their mother's abuse by authorities. Dorothea was moved several times living with different family members, friends, foster care homes, and even an orphanage where unfortunately she would be abused again. By 16 years old, Dorothea made her way on her own to Olympia, Washington, where she earned a living by sex working. It was there that Fred McFall first laid eyes on Dorothea and the pair were married in 1945. Fred was a 22-year-old soldier who had returned home from the Pacific after World War II. Fred and Dorothea moved to Gardnerville, Nevada to start a family of their own and in 1946, Dorothea gave birth to their first child. Less than a year later, Dorothea gave birth to their second child, but being a mother was not for Dorothea. Their first child was given to relatives for them to care for, and their second child was placed up for adoption. By 1948, the three-year marriage had been put to the test and the couple split. Wow, that's a lot, a lot, a lot to unpack right there. It's a difficult life. Just like parents dying back to back and also having that grief, but also with the background that they were not loving and they were not great and then having to move around and then fortunately we see this too often but they go from foster care to orphanage and a lot of those times some of those situations are not the healthiest Mm -hmm. and it's just really unfortunate I think it's really interesting and I know like obviously we're talking the 1940s birth control is not a thing Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting that they had 
two children but had no intention of keeping like, it, to me that mindset doesn't make sense but you also have to keep in perspective that the time frame and kind of how that environment laid out is not not beneficial for any sort yeah. of protection or anything like that absolutely so. well and I do this will probably be the only props that I do give Dorothea is she recognized like okay I don't want to be a mother and yeah there's other ways but in the 40s, there wasn't any yeah. ways to, like, prevent or, you know, she pretty much had to give birth. But I will give her props that in the world where everyone was like, you have to be a mother, you have to be this, you have to She's be this. Like, no, I she can't was do like, it. no, yeah. So props yeah. for her on that because I think, unfortunately, the kids might be messed up if they had stayed with her. Later that same year of 1948, Dorothea moved back to California and settled in San Bernardino but she wasn't off to a great start. She was picked up for floating or writing a bad check under a false name and served four months in jail. When she was released, she quickly fled to Riverside County, disregarding the rules of her probation. Dorothea had met a new man named Axel Bren Johannesson during her flee, and the couple married in 1952. This marriage wouldn't be a breeze either, though. Dorothea continued sex work and began drinking and gambling. This, of course, only intensified the couple's arguments and led to several separations between the two. In 1961, Axel had Dorothea committed to a psychiatric ward after she was arrested by an undercover cop during a raid of a brothel. The brothel had been attempting to hide as a bookkeeping service in a residential neighborhood, but Dorothea was booked after offering to perform oral sex for the undercover cop who was posed as a trucker. Dorothea served 90 days in the county jail and was committed by her husband a few months after her release. She was treated with antipsychotics during her hospitalization, but it's unclear if Dorothea was diagnosed with any disorder at this time. By 1966, the pair separated for good when Axel divorced Dorothea. But third time's the charm, right? Okay, I have to jump in with Axel. First off, I'm not into that at yeah. all because I do know back in the day they used to just say, oh, she's PMSing or she's being or she's manic or yeah, yeah like get her committed I don't know I don't want to speak to her mental state because I don't know and I, I wouldn't ever know mm-hmm. but I would think this is more of an escape and trying to just survive rather than being committed to something and prescribe medication that's not necessarily helping you because you're not at that state absolutely In 1968, Dorothea married her third husband, Roberto Puente, a Mexican immigrant, which, by the way, just a quick note, is someone who immigrates for political reasons. Mm. So he, Mexican immigrant, 16 years younger than the now 39-year-old Dorothea, and the couple settled in Sacramento. In the book Disturbed Ground, written by Carla Norton, it is described that Roberto was interested in his heavyset bride for, quote, money and American citizenship, end quote. The marriage split in 1969 after one year, and shortly after, Dorothea marries Pedro Montalvo, but he left her after one week and the marriage was dissolved. During the short-lived marriages, Dorothea briefly ran an unofficial rehab program for alcoholics, but now single, she opens a 16-room mansion as a boarding house in Sacramento. She welcomes the elderly, the disabled, alcoholics, and addicts into her home as a safe place to live, or so everyone thought. That is, what, four marriages? Four. Mm-hmm. And none of them lasted over five years? No, Axel was the longest. I think it was like 14, but they had oh, several, several separations. several separations. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I never liked the play. It's like picture perfect, kind of like what we discussed last episode of everyone thinks that this is happening. Mm-hmm. And 
sometimes y'all you just gotta be like asking the question yeah and sometimes the <laughs> Take answer a you're look. like whoa yeah i don't think that's cool absolutely now unlike her marriages the boarding home was a quick success even though it would never be legally licensed Dorothea poured all of her money into political campaigns and charitable causes, which gets her into an elite circle, one of which Dorothea claims included Ronald Reagan, the Kennedys, and Clint Eastwood. This account, of course, is unverified, although the boarding home would be decorated with framed photos of her and smaller-time politicians throughout. So even though it was never formally licensed, how did she get away with doing all this and getting a lot of publicity, whether it was small-time or big-time political figures or celebrities i'm not understanding how that even happened sure so i think it was either oh it's just kind of the paperwork side like Mm. she's doing so much good that or people just never asked yeah you know so it goes back to my episode of like well do you remember the munchausen episode that i did Mm -hmm. that her mom was supposedly doing all this good but on the back end she was making up all these illnesses of her daughter and it's like what Whoa. appears as this like, <laughs> like so, beautiful like, there's a helping yeah. that those legalities are in place, y'all. And I think that's why it's so much darker is because it's covered up by like this, you know, what you gold was good. And, yeah. yeah, and people look away because they're like, "Wow, such a good person." Yeah, you it's know? a nonprofit. They're definitely doing the right thing. Yeah, just because they don't have the paperwork, it's fine. Yeah. You know, regardless of her elite or not so elite circle, Dorothea was praised by local social workers for taking in the more difficult tenants that the social workers found harder to place. That's another thing I will add is even now in today's standards it was hard to place people on social work and you know that whole thing was kind of messed up so i think because she was like yeah send them on over send them on over and they, they were quick people, to help yes absolutely because they're like oh we'll give you this because you're helping us and mm-hmm. i'm term. overwhelmed and i just need this person who has been struggling with addiction for years and years and years and no one wants to take this person in and you know she has welcomed them so the social workers helped. They recognized that and were like, okay, let's just do it. Yeah. The boarding home could sleep up to two dozen people and Dorothea always opened the door for the less than desirable tenants. Despite taking on lower income tenants, the business was steady and the cash flow followed. This wasn't enough for Dorothea though. Behind closed doors, Dorothea was forging and cashing the checks of her tenants And then sometimes she provided them back with a small portion for necessities. So nice of her, right? This scam worked well for years until she was arrested in 1978. She received five years federal probation, and this also forbid her from running her boarding house. In the next few years that followed, Dorothea began working as an in-house caregiver. Like a dog with a bone, Dorothea escalated her fraud. It is stated that she often lied about her age, adding 10 to 15 years in order to fool her other elderly clients as she stole from them. In the early 80s, Dorothea tranquilized three women so that she could steal cash, checks, and jewelry from their homes. Oh my god. Yeah. In 1982, her friend and business partner, Ruth Monroe, died from an overdose of Tylenol and codeine shortly after moving in with Dorothea. Dorothea explained to police that Ruth had been depressed as her husband had become severely ill. Police officially declared Ruth's death a suicide, even though there was no note left, and Dorothea received $6,000 from Ruth's estate after her passing. I'm sorry, of Tylenol? So, (laughs) Tylenol, technically it's the, I don't think they found 
full-on Tylenol in the body, but it was the active ingredient in Tylenol okay. that that and codeine was the cause so of it was the overdose. Mix. Yeah, I was like, I've never yeah. heard of that before. It would have to be the mix. Okay. Shortly after Ruth's death, Dorothea robbed a 74-year-old man she met at a club by slipping a sedative into his drink. When they arrived back to his apartment, the drug man watched Dorothea rob him before he passed out. Seeing this time, Dorothea's luck had run out. She was charged with a total of 34 counts of treasury fraud and was sentenced to five years in federal prison. She was released after serving three years, but her probation was extended until 1990. Before Dorothea's release from prison, a state psychologist diagnosed Dorothea with schizophrenia. He stated, quote, This woman is a disturbed woman who does not appear to have remorse or regret for what she has done. She is to be considered dangerous, and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored. End quote. Now, I think we all know that being diagnosed with schizophrenia does not have a direct link with someone being dangerous or that they'll become a serial killer, but of course, had to remind everyone anyways. <laughs> yeah. I also want to provide you with a brief overview of what exactly schizophrenia is. According to the American Psychiatric Association, quote, when schizophrenia is active, symptoms can include delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, trouble with thinking, and lack of motivation, end quote. There are several misconceptions regarding schizophrenia, with the main one being that people diagnosed are more dangerous or violent than the average human being. However, that is incorrect. Another common misconception is that schizophrenia includes split multiple personality disorders, which again, is incorrect. Currently, less than 1% of the U.S. population suffers from schizophrenia, yet it is one of the most heard of mental disorders among the general public. I think it's really great that you touch on that because a lot of people see what is exacerbated in movies of like mm-hmm. the going, worst case scenario. Yeah, like wor- from different and multiple personalities, and most of the time it's not the that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the symptoms are a lot less mild. People are not necessarily more aggressive, but more closed in because they're concerned about their environment. And I think it's really great that you put that they're not necessarily more dangerous or more violent. And sometimes it's the complete opposite. They're very docile and mm-hmm. are they not, can live they, a normal they, life. Yeah, and they're not going to engage in those intense or violent situations because of what is going on inside of them. Do you think it's noted that this is one of the mental illnesses that has a lot of stigma behind it and is super well known, but it's so uncommon. Mm-hmm. It's actually crazy how uncommon that someone can be diagnosed Especially with this. A, like a severe case, mm-hmm. like you see like in the like one the movies that people talk about, or, yeah. yeah, that's the thing that people automatically jump to and that's why I wanted to put that in there. It's kind of like in the case of sharks, you know, people think, if there's a shark within a mile, it's going to come and find you. It's going to eat you. No, that's not the case. You know, it's been like programmed into our brain from the fictional stories and worst yeah, case scenarios, things exactly. like that. So wanted to put that in there. But I also, I think you'll love this. I follow a guy on TikTok. I'll send you his account and I'll put it below. <laughs> he has schizophrenia and he has a service dog that helps him. So he was showing a video. He was having um, visual hallucinations. And so he tells his service dog, greet. He just says, greet. So the service dog is trained to greet anyone that he tells him to. So he's in his house. He sees a visual hallucination. He tells the dog, greet. If the dog doesn't greet, then he knows it's a hallucination. 
Wow. Dogs are so smart. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> but like that's how like yeah, he and it's really cool. I'll I'll have to to put him down below. But Oh, that's so I thought sweet. I, would that I love that. So yeah, they can live a normal life and they just have you know, additional tools or maybe even medications that they would need to, to help them out. Yeah, no, I, I think, thank you for sharing that because I think a lot of people needed to hear that. Yeah. And it just it doesn't have said to be over scary. and over again. Yeah. <laughs> like, it'll be okay. You just have to figure out what you're dealing with and how you can control it or subside those side effects of what is happening. Is like you said, I mean, just having a dog greet this either hallucination or real person can help you distinguish on what's going on mm-hmm. versus this crazy, scary story of someone locking the basement, having different personalities, and you don't mm-hmm. know what you're dealing with. That is not the case yeah. hardly ever. And it it's it's just incredible that we've built that up in our mind and have no idea what we're even talking about. Absolutely. Well, and with this case, I think it's very important to separate the two because although they may have a little bit of crossover and yes she was diagnosed with schizophrenia I don't think and you'll kind of see later on I don't think that schizophrenia was the reason she became a serial killer if that makes sense no and I, I definitely agree with you especially back with the time frame that we're talking about I mean they would say everything and anything was a mental disorder to the extremes, extremes, extremes. That necessarily mm-hmm. wasn't the case. It was like people were frustrated or or a woman verbalized that they were upset. It's like, yeah. oh God, she is schizophrenic because she spoke out, you know? So yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to like kind of take that information without knowing because a lot of that was very, very inaccurate. Absolutely. And people didn't know how to dissolve or digest that information. For sure. While in prison, Dorothea made a pen pal by the name of Everson Gilmouth, who was 77 years old. She was in her late 50s during this time, and upon her release, the pair opened a joint baking account. A few months later, Dorothea hired a handyman to install wood paneling in her home. And so I know, could you even imagine paying someone to put wood paneling in your house today? I'm still shocked that they opened a bank account together. <laughs> that should not shock you anywhere. We're talking about Dorothea. <laughs> well, she's she's taking names, taking cash. Yeah, I know, but like that's crazy. He was just like, yeah, let's do it. Scamming. I mean, I was barely reluctant to do it after I got married to my freaking <laughs> husbands. I'm like, you go. Everson, yeah. but also don't because it's a trap. Well, and also remember he's 77, right? Yeah. So like He's getting older, and I'm sure she used some kind of ploy to say, like, oh, well, you know, we can share funds. Yeah, but the like... wood paneling is coming back. I've seen it a lot lately. Or do you for, mean, like... like, the shiplap? Yeah. I guess shiplap is different than wood paneling, though, I think. But it's still, like, same concept. That's true. Very true. But anyways, she ends up giving this handyman an $800 bonus and a red pickup truck, which she stated her boyfriend gave to her. She also hired him to build a wooden box that measured six feet long, three feet wide, and two feet deep, which also happens to be about the same size as a coffin. And Everson owned a red pickup truck. She told the handyman the large box was to store books, but on the way to store the box at a storage location, Dorothea told the man that she wanted to dump near a riverbank instead, and that it was just junk anyways. What? <laughs> like? Yeah, that's right. Ma'am. That's wild. Yeah. I would also be like, I'm so sorry. 
this doesn't sound right. Can we open up the box? <laughs> can I just see what's inside? Yeah, because like, I don't have any culpable for this. But she gave him a pickup truck and $800. So well, I guess oh he my was... God. I guess he was good with it. The box would be spotted by a fisherman months later and suspicious that it was shaped like a coffin, he called the police. They would find a badly decomposed body in the box, which would later be identified as Everson Gilmouth, but not for another three years. During that time, Dorothea continued to forge Everson's checks and even began writing letters to his family pretending to be him. Oh, and did I forget to mention that Dorothea opened another boarding house shortly after her release? Yeah, and remember, this was not allowed under her probation conditions. She was also specifically told to stay away from the elderly and government checks, but old habits die hard. Dorothea was quick to explain away the extra people in her home to the many federal probation officers that visit her, stating that they were either guests or friends. This home, a two-story Victorian home located at 1426 F Street in Sacramento, was smaller than her 16-room mansion, but could still fit up to eight tenants comfortably. Dorothea's neighbors grew suspicious when seeing Dorothea hired the homeless alcoholic man only known as Chief. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she would explain that she adopted the man, but they noted seeing Chief dig several large holes around the property, as well as filling in some with concrete. If this wasn't enough reason to worry, neighbors also complained about horrendous stench that drifted into their homes from Dorothea's. Dorothea calmed their worries by explaining the smell was from a sewage leak, and the neighbors eventually got used to just keeping their windows and doors shut. Uh, I do not do stinky smells, so like no, I would neither. be like, you have to get that fixed, or... I'm going to sell your house. Yeah. (laughs) You either have to go. I'm going to report you. I don't know what I'm going to do, but that needs to go. Yeah. I cannot. Yeah. I love that he was called Chief, though. That was so cute. Yeah. (laughs) On November 11th, 1988, police visit Dorothea's home after a 52-year-old man named Alvaro Montoya was reported missing by an outreach counselor for Volunteers of America. Alvaro, also diagnosed as schizophrenic, struggled with his mental illness, often becoming homeless, and was referred to Dorothea's boarding home because of her reputation for helping the usually unwanted people. The counselor named Judy Moyes contacted police not long after Montoya disappeared because she didn't believe Dorothea's explanation that he left for vacation. When police arrived to the home, they noticed some freshly disturbed soil in the garden that seemed suspicious, but were not at all thinking Dorothea was a suspect in the man's disappearance. Dorothea also told police that Montoya was on vacation, and another tenant confirmed this as well while with Dorothea. It wasn't until Dorothea was not around and the police were walking out the door that the man slipped police a note stating, quote, she's making me lie for her, end quote. Is this man chief? No, this is a different guy. Okay. Police return to the home and ask Dorothea if they can search the property, and she agrees. She also allows police to dig in her yard, where the disturbed soil was, and even provides police with an extra shovel. After this act of kindness, police unearth skeletal remains from her yard. Shocked and nervous, Dorothea asks police if she was under arrest, to which they stated no. She then asks police if she could walk down the street to grab a cup of coffee, as this was all very disturbing to her, and police explained that she was free to go. But of course, Dorothea didn't walk down the street for a cup of coffee. She vanished. Why did they let her go? Because they weren't fresh remains. They were skeletal remains. Okay. So they knew it wasn't the person that they were looking for. Mm, So they were like, you know, this is an old home. It could be anything. Like they weren't 
thinking this little old lady, like literally a little old lady, <laughs> was a serial killer. That's so wild. Yeah. And like you're already thinking, of course, police dig up the remains of Alvaro Montoya, but they also dig up an additional six more bodies. The six bodies, not including Alvaro Montoya, were identified as Dorothy Miller, who was 64, Benjamin Fink, who was 55, Betty Palmer, who was 78, James Gallup, 62, Leona Carpenter, who was 78, and Vera Faye Martin, who was 64. Betty's remains had also been mutilated. Her head, hands, and feet were missing. The cause of death for these seven victims would never fully be identified. All bodies contain the prescription drug Dalmain, which is used as a sleeping aid, and this could cause an overdose if accidentally taken too much, especially for the elderly, but could also be pretty easy for someone to mix a lethal dose into someone's food or drink as well. Are you going to go into this later, but are we going to figure out how she murdered these people? Um, Especially, I'm just curious because of the mutilation. Like, if she's this little old lady, how did she do that? Yeah. So, they don't fully go into it in the research that I had, but police do find a room that was, like, completely overran with the smell of death. And Mm. so, they figured that in order to not have just, like, all these coffins to have chief or another handyman dig a hole and they would become suspicious she later would like start chopping them up to fit into smaller it's also crazy a dead body is not nothing like that's heavy yeah so i think probably what happened was either she drugged them had them you know fall asleep or gave them too much of a sleeping aid and then either suffocated them while they slept or just relied on the overdose to take effect while they were sleeping and then she could literally just throw them out of bed and drag them to that room and then have the handyman do the rest you know yeah Dorothea was in the wind for five days while police searched the southern U.S. and Mexico. Turns out Dorothea was in a hotel in Los Angeles and on the fifth day was recognized at the hotel bar by a man she introduced herself to as Donna. He had recognized her from the news and called police. By now, police have also linked the quote-unquote suicide of Ruth Monroe and the death of her boyfriend Everson Gilmouth as likely victims as well. Dorothea was charged with all nine deaths. She adamantly denies that she killed anyone and explains to the police that the seven bodies found on her property all died of natural causes, and she only had them buried because she didn't want to be caught running an unlicensed boarding home while on parole. Her trial begins on October of 1992 in Monterey County due to the media coverage and lasted a year. The prosecution called 103 witnesses during the year-long trial, and funny enough, the public learns that there was a tip made to police previously that Dorothea Puente was killing people and burying them in her yard, but it wasn't taken seriously as the person who made the tip was a heroin addict and had charges pending. By 1993, Dorothea was charged and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, but she was only found guilty of three murders, not nine as the jury deadlocked on the other six charges. Dorothea was found guilty of first-degree murder for Benjamin Fink and Vera Faye Martin and guilty on second-degree murder for the murder of Leona Carpenter. Both the first-degree charges held life sentences. Second-degree murder added another 25 years. The death penalty was on the table. However, jurors chose not to put Dorothea to death 
And it was reported that one juror stated it would have been like putting your grandma to death. Oh my gosh. I don't care. She killed nine people. Yeah, but it's like, just like that look that, that they can't. That concept, yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's, like, I, I can't no imagine way. being a victim's family member and hearing that and being like, dude, she killed, like actually yeah. killed my grandmothers. Like I get it, but it's also contradictory because she did that to other people's grandmother or grandfather yeah absolutely it's also really frustrating to hear that there is potential that this could have been stopped sooner Mm -hmm. but they just didn't take a tip seriously and like to me most of the time the police have informants they are drug dealers or things so i don't know why just because this was a heroin addict i mean i guess it would be quite unbelievable right like if this heroin addict is like, hey, like, give me a deal. I have some tips. This little old lady is murdering people and burying them in the yard. They'd be like, <laughs> I, like, I get you. it, but also, yes, this is why stuff like that happens. Yeah. Because people are because, crazy. Yeah. Like, that's, she literally was getting away with murder because she chose the they, vulnerable victims yeah. that nobody would miss. And she, didn't look she looked vulnerable herself. Yeah. Yeah. In prison, Dorothea agreed to a couple of interviews with journalists and even became an author after one of her pen pals, Shane Bugby, published the book, quote, Cooking with a Serial Killer, Recipes from Dorothea Puente, end quote, from the recipe she sent him while in prison. But throughout her 18 years in prison, Dorothea maintained her innocence until her death in 2011. She died of natural causes at the age of 82. There were actually a lot of flat-out lies that Dorothea told journalists, but it's unclear whether or not these lies were part of delusions manifested from her schizophrenia, or if Dorothea was just a pathological liar, or if she just wanted to gain sympathy. Some of the information that was either found to be false or could never be verified was that Dorothea was actually one of 18 children that lived on the streets in Mexico as a child. Another was that she gave birth to twins who would take their own lives just a week apart from another. And of course, all of her famous politician friends that I mentioned earlier. In an article for Sacktown Magazine, Dorothea, who spent a good amount of time with the journalist Martin Coos, stated that she missed, quote, going to church every day, cooking what I want, working in my yard, end quote. After he asked her what she missed about her life before prison, She added that she attends services at the prison chapel, but avoids joining worship groups at the prison because, quote, I don't feel like confessing my sins to anyone. That's between me and my God, end quote. And going back to that first quote, I don't know if you caught that, Danny, but she said she missed working in her yard. And when I read that, my jaw literally dropped. No, dude, when you said that, I was like, oh, I bet you do. <laughs> you, you're you so innocent, chick. Oh, my yes. gosh. Well, and then the whole thing of, like, I don't want to confess, confess my, my sins. Confess my sins. Uh-uh. But they all died of natural causes. It. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed that irony often passed Dorothea by, as she also mentioned to Martin that she enjoyed watching crime shows such as CSI, Criminal Minds, and Cold Case as well as reading John Grisham and Dan Brown books. Yeah, so do I, but I also don't go out murdering nine people and burying them in my backyard. Yes. I can't get over the fact that she made a cookbook. I Okay. Cooking with a serial killer. I don't even know why things like that are allowed to be published. Like, it blows my mind. It makes me so upset. Because this is a free country, Danny. <laughs> That's why. This is America. <laughs> yes. But it's wild. It's like, you are... This whole facade is 
over the death of other people yeah it is a very thin line it's because like obviously we like and enjoy watching crime shows but we don't get like happy satisfaction out of watching other people's eyes it's like a it's it's a thin line but in her case it's just she's doing it for like the high of the experience or to like relive what she was doing and i mean i think she just has no empathy that's why i was saying like you can't i don't think her schizophrenia has anything to do with her becoming a serial killer because like she was just psychopathic yeah to begin with yeah no i agree But I'm curious to hear what you guys think about Dorothea Puente. I have no doubt in my mind that her traumatic childhood played at least a small part of the decision she made as an adult, but it's very concerning to me that she never took responsibility for anything, literally anything at all. But again, let us know what you think on Instagram or Facebook at Stories. If you have a case suggestion, please reach out through our website at lawghoststories.com. All of today's source material will be linked in the description box below. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple weeks, but until then, stay safe out there. It's a weird world. Thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound nightmare for our theme music.